When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara, film journalist and author of the book of the same name because I ran out of inspiration. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at female directors. Now, women have to contend with all kinds of obstacles when it comes to directing films that their male peers simply don't have to face. There's unconscious biases, outright discrimination, uncooperative crews, difficulties finding funding or distribution, a lack of representation at award shows, the list goes on. So today I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of female directors about the problems that they've faced and what needs to change to make things better for female filmmakers. We'll be hearing from Phyllida Lloyd, the director of hugely successful films like Mamma Mia and The Iron Lady, as well as her latest feature, Herself, which is fantastic. And if you haven't seen it, please do check it out. We'll also hear from BAFTA and Sundance-nominated director Tina Goravi and documentary filmmaker Amy Adrian, who directed the 2018 film Half the Picture, which is expressly about female directors and the lack thereof. Kathy Brady also spoke to me about directing her debut feature, Wildfire. And apologies if both of our accents get really, really strong in that segment, but that's what happens when you put two Northern Irish people together. But first, we're going to hear from writer, director and performer Sarah Grant, who's a BAFTA Scotland New Talent Award nominee and a Sky Academy Arts Scholar. I asked her about the differences between her experiences as a young filmmaker in Scotland and those of her male contemporaries. So I kind of came up uh, in the kind of Scottish indie short filmmaking scene, which is a very, which is a very varied scene in terms of like how big productions are working with and how small people are making things with absolutely nothing and people are managing to crowdfund and like, you know, the tens of thousands. So it's a really varied scene that way, but it's not very varied in terms of the people who are doing it if you go to any networking event any screening event the majority a hundred percent will be straight white men in their 20s I mean I'm a loud person and always have been so I've always felt I was a bit more equipped to take up space in these places Uh, however there was definitely a point that I was like I, I'm not doing this anymore like I I nearly did throw in the towel I can't be bothered with this because I felt like no matter how much I was kind of fighting to make my voice heard, no one was interested in hearing it because it wasn't like, you know, what anyone wanted to hear at that time. So, yeah, I'd say it was I'd say it could have been a a bit difficult, but um, I think things started to really turn themselves around for me when I stopped trying to play in those spaces where I just started going back to making things because I wanted to make them and just putting them out there. And I think that's when I didn't realise until then that I was probably trying to make things that would play well in these spaces and therefore not really authentically my own voice. And when I started giving that more of an attention, that's when people started to pay attention, which was surprising but nice uh, because I was very much on the brink of being like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm done, I'm out, <laughs> no thanks. That's interesting because that is something I have heard from, you know, doing interviews for the book, I heard that from very, very established feature directors as well, that there is this tension sometimes between what you're allowed to say and do and which films you're allowed to make which films your stories you're allowed to tell and and maybe where your interests naturally lie and where you're sort of instinctually drawn to that it's a bit of a it can be a little bit of a tug sometimes between the two. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's obviously people want to kind of stay ahead of the zeitgeist, um, especially in early stages of their careers because you make one thing that people 
that cut through and then that's pretty much there's an element of I think there is always that expectation I'm putting air quotes around the make it and uh, that is there's never really that thing that that's that's a myth that's a myth you never make it you just make something that allows you to make something bigger or different next time which is still fantastic I guess that would I'd count that as making it I've been like right I've made something that means I can um take the next step or do something different or I can go further in the direction that I that I see like my end goal I guess which is good for me but there is always that thing being like am I because you spend so much time like especially like people who are making features and things you're investing so much of your time and so much in to your energy so there is this this kind of doubt in the back of your mind being like if I'm throwing my everything into this this is years of my life and years of my energy as well is this going to be something that the gatekeepers like the mythical gatekeepers of the industry let me pass with because if not then isn't it a waste of time so there is always that fear in the back of your head that the dream that you want to make might not matter that it is in your eyes the best thing you could possibly make if it doesn't get picked up by the people who are out with your your control. So I, I get that. That's that's a difficult question. I struggle with it a lot. There's also the fact that if you're a storyteller, there's an element you want people to like your stories and you yourself want to be liked. So there's an element of always trying to play to the people who have that power. There's an element of if they like the stories you're telling, that means they like you as well. And that's that's a that's a that's a hard voice to say no to or to ignore. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants to be liked, and also, you know, you you want to tell stories that will be seen and will be considered and will be will connect with people. You know, you want that chance, I guess. There's a couple of things there that you said that I just want to pick up on. You've talked about you know investing years of your life in this. I mean, th- this is something that I hear from a lot of female directors as well that the gap between projects for female directors has, at least historically, and I hope this is beginning to change, has been vast. You know, it's been sort of. You know, even for a successful feature director, it's been maybe a decade until her next film uh, quite often. And if you do fail on one of these steps forward, it's a lot harder to kind of get that momentum back and get yourself back into the conversation and get another chance to do your next thing. I think this is a real problem that um, where you kind of see the differences between uh, female directors and male directors. When you make something great, equal footing two people make something fantastic and then the next project and they've had to convince people to let them make it to give them money give them investment invest their time into it they've had to convince people the next time the guy doesn't have to convince anyone they go we know we've seen the woman does she she has to convince again and again and again and I think that's the kind of draining thing. So there isn't really so much of being like, well, look at what I've done before. It's like, yeah, but you can't expect that kind of success every single time. Like you have to come to something fresh. I'm like, yeah, but that is that is double standards. You'll convince yourself that the other person doesn't need that amount of time, which is why I, I think that there's such a massive gap because it is almost like with every project for women, you're starting from scratch, whereas the reputation is more in the man's favor. So therefore he doesn't really need to convince anyone that he's the right person for the job or that he's got the goods whereas I feel that women do even now yeah it's still happening isn't it yeah you talked about you know thinking about giving up at at one point do you think that a lot of women do end up internalizing this idea that I just it's not for me I can't do it this is not well I mean they may legitimately rationally conclude this is not an environment for women but do you think they sort of internalize also this idea that women just can't direct there are too many obstacles in the way I think what might possibly happen is that and this is just from my experience kind of seeing a lot of people come up like incredible voices that are really fresh and different and indie like you know and really small do really small things that are fantastic as the writer director and then just start to be involved with other people's projects and then you get these these things that are compliments but at the same time they're very ingrained in gender roles is when you say that would you mind maybe producing this one or would you mind having a hand in the organization you're just so good at the organizing things oh that's something that I wouldn't even think about thank god you're here you're just so good at managing people oh you're so great at speaking to people and doing that and then without actually knowing realizing it's happened the woman's in a producer role which is still a very important and a really important dynamic and wonderful role to be in. But they're not the creative visionary behind the project that they were to begin with. I think it could be a societal thing in the community where you're kind of praised for a different aspect of your work. 
and therefore you naturally end up following that through and feeling needed more for that. So you're not really given the praise for being the visionary. You're given the praise for being on top of things. And it's like, and that's a little bit like the mother role as well sort of thing. It's like, you know, why in a kind of heteronormative relationship, it's always the woman that knows when to send flowers to his mum's birthday, you know? It's that, that like, oh, I just forget these things. You've just, you're just so organised and it's, you can, you can draw you can draw real lines from that to this. You can draw so many lines from gender roles in the family to the industry and filmmaking. Like, it's it's not a massive jump between the two. So the more you talk to directors like Sarah, you'll find that their experiences are echoed across the film industry, as you can also see in Amy Adrian's documentary, Half the Picture, which celebrates female filmmakers and examines the discrimination that they face. I asked Amy what inspired her to make the film. I'm a woman director. I was encountering many of the challenges that many other women and non-binary directors face. I'd graduated film school. I was trying to get some films going and found it really hard, as, as everyone does. All kinds of people find it difficult to raise financing and get attachments and, and get a production company behind your independent film, all that kind of stuff. But I remember I was actually at a at a play date. I was at, it was my kids and uh, a friend of mine who was a journalist for Variety. Uh, we went to college together. Her kids were there, and we were just talking about the statistics of women film directors and how every year it just felt like you could wait for your annual like beatdown. You know, you would get those numbers, and <laughs> yeah. it would be four percent, three percent, five percent, four percent for twenty years. And just being a fan of so many women film directors loving their work, knowing their work. It just felt like, what is happening? This was in 2015. So it was right when the statistics were converging with some high profile women directors speaking out, being like, here's the cha- here are the challenges that I faced. So it was at that play date, we were like, we should make a film about this. So we started doing research and talking to some of the women on the front lines of this battle. So people like Maria Geis, who has been an activist at the Directors Guild and is a filmmaker herself, and just other people who were, you know, had been fighting this fight for years. And we started researching. And in so many ways, there was like the bigger picture, the the statistics, the the industry as a whole. And it was just as a personal mission to myself. I wanted to answer the question like, okay, I've been studying this. I've made short films, I've made web series, I have feature scripts, like, am I trying to do an impossible thing? Like, let's, let's talk to these women and figure out, do I just give up? Or like, what is going on here? And if they can give me some hope, then maybe I can continue to find my path. So it was very like a personal quest for me too to be like, is this possible? So that's how we started making it. Was there anything that surprised you? Or was it all too familiar in the things you learned while you were making the film? Both. And I will say the women who we interview in the film, Eva DuVernay and Joey Soloway and Gina Prince-Bythewood, Karin Kusama, Catherine Hardwick, uh, Mary Heron, they're so different. They're, you know, Chris Hedges, amazing documentary filmmaker. They're such different women, different projects, genres, tastes, styles, but there was definitely overlap in some of the challenges that they faced. And I would say for me, the biggest surprise is that so many of the women who I look up to, who I just think, wow, you are so good at this. And like, I aspire to study your work and be someday as good as you. Those women had the same exact challenges that I had. And they, you know, didn't get grants and they didn't get funding. And big actors said no to their scripts and they didn't get into big festivals. And they, so even the ones who I feel like are up here, you know, they just are so good at what they do. They had the same exact frustrations, particularly starting out and now, honestly, and now as I do. And so that was a bit surprising where, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'm still learning. I'm at this level. I know my own skills and talents. And so, you know, and as women, I think we tend to internalize any rejection, frustration. You think, oh, I just, I just need to get better at it. I'm not good enough or once I'm more experienced, I won't encounter these problems. And, you know, no, these, these women are like so good and, and they still encounter that. And then you look at women like Catherine Hardwick or Sam Taylor Johnson, women who kind of launch these epic, huge money-making blockbuster franchises. And they have that in their back pocket and they're still hustling for films. So you go, okay, well, what's the metric for success then if those women are still hustling now to get their projects going? Like, what do we have to do? 
there's still so many firsts happening basically with female directors. There's, you know, I, I remember um, Ava DuVernay making uh, a wrinkle in time, you know, I think people said it was the most expensive film ever made by a woman director. And you're like, that's not that expensive. Like that's, but, but the standards of these things, this is not a crazy, crazy high budget. And yet that was a, that was a first, you know, I mean, it, it does feel like there is, these myths maybe that women either don't want to or can't make big films are taking a very long time to die. Oh yeah. I mean, and there's so many, that's one of the frustrations. There are just so many myths that people take to be true that just have no basis in, in fact or reality. You know, women don't want to direct genre. Women don't want to direct high budget films. They just self-select out because they want to, you know, hang out with their kids or whatever. And it's like, you know, certainly in our film and half the picture, you know, just maybe not every woman and not every moment in your life at different times in your life, you make different decisions, but, you know, almost to a, to a person in our film, you know, given the chance, would you want the, the tools and the toolbox and the resources to tell something on a grand scale where your film is on the side of a bus in every country in the world? Like, do you want to have your fingers in that pot and be able to, you know, create that piece of art, that piece of, work that that has that reach every one of them would say yeah yeah i'll figure out childcare. i'll figure out this i'll figure out that and like yeah i want to i want to play in that arena so yeah that's one of many of these myths that i think are they're not starting to die they're still there they're, they're pretty entrenched even though they there is no basis in fact and you know you talk about films by you know filmmakers of color there's a lot of kind of received conventional wisdom that oh you know black films don't travel outside of the u.s or certain kinds of films don't work internationally and it's just there's not basis there's not actual research to substantiate that well that's the thing because when they do the research or, or when a counterexample comes along you know historically right this used to get me as a journalist i'd be you know writing up the writing about the summer blockbusters whatever that came out or the the box office results each week and i would see these articles talking about i don't know eat pray love or the devil wears prada or mamma mia as a sleeper hit and i'd be like in what universe are those not expected to do well that, that those are nailed on solid performing films like the worst case scenario those are going to do well this is not a sleeper hit but it felt like every film led by a woman and possibly made by a woman as well was being kind of exceptionalized oh well that's different that's we should we could never have seen that coming that is completely irreplicable you know it's not it's not a model that we can you know follow and it feels like that that at least is beginning to change because people are doing the research because films like wonder woman and black panther and captain marvel are beginning to dismantle some of those myths, their fantasies. Yeah, and you, you know, gosh, however many years was it that Thelma and Louise came out? It just had its whatever anniversary, is it 30? 30, I think. Yeah, you know, I remember when that film came out and was so groundbreaking, you know, there was this idea, oh, there's gonna just be a flood of Thelma and Louise, you know, like films and knockoffs and things that mine the same territory. There just wasn't, you know, it's like, there wasn't. Thelma. I'll get it! Thelma, I've not told you I can't stand it when you holler in the morning. I'm sorry, darling. I just didn't want you to be late. Hey, how you doing, little housewife? Louise. Yeah, I still have to ask Daryl if I can go. You mean you haven't asked him yet? Thelma, is he your husband or your father? Thelma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. <laughs> He's going to kill you! I left him a note. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma? Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? That was, obviously, an excerpt from the trailer for Thelma and Louise, starring Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. Now, of course, that wasn't directed by a woman. It was directed by Ridley Scott. But it remains one of the most prominent female-led films of recent decades. And yet, despite its massive popularity, it wasn't treated as a model for future success. Movies like Thelma and Louise are often seen as sort of sleeper hits that no one could have seen coming. But we've had plenty of successful female-led and female-made films that make loads and loads of money for studios, and yet they keep being written off that way. Another film that fits that pattern is Mamma Mia! which was directed by Phyllida Lloyd in 2008. 
Lloyd, of course, began her career as a director for theatre and the opera, and later moved into feature films with Mamma Mia, The Iron Lady, and most recently, herself. I asked Philida about the origins of herself and her path to getting it made. Well, Claire Dunn, who wrote and stars in the film, and I, and Harriet Walter, who's also in the film, we were working together on a series of Shakespeare plays with an all-female company and the productions were all set in a women's prison. And we were working in prison. We were really preoccupied by the number of women we met who had had childhoods of domestic abuse. And we were wanting to put these women's voices out there, tell stories. At some point on our journey, which went on for about five or six, we were working together for about five or six years, Claire had a friend in Ireland who became homeless with two small children. Her landlord was selling, she was asked to move out, and she literally couldn't find anywhere to live in Dublin. No social housing, nothing affordable. And so she declared herself homeless. And Claire was so outraged by the story that she sat down and started to write the film. And at first I was a kind of just a friend and mentor looking at the screenplay, thinking this is maybe a project for an Irish director, etc. And then I got gradually more and more into thinking, God, you know, maybe I could do this. And also was very propelled by the fact that Claire wasn't thinking of playing Sandra in the film because she thought to get the film made, it might need a name. I was beginning to think I could see Claire wasn't getting the work I thought she deserved on screen. And I thought, blimey, you know, this is outrageous. She's got to play Sandra. And if I direct it, maybe I can make that happen. This is the kind of thing that we still don't see a lot of. We still don't see a lot of female-led stories, first of all, and we definitely don't see a lot of working-class female-led stories as well. And that that feels like that's important, that that's beginning to happen. Yeah, and I I think it is. And I think that as an interesting, you know, Claire's take on this subject is very distinctive. And I think that's one of the things when I read the screenplay, you know, we have seen or read in different media the the story of the quote-unquote battered woman. And this had a very particular flavour to it. And I think it comes from Claire having been determined that she's speaking not just to, you know, you and I who feel safe in our homes and maybe should be sort of being a bit more mindful about whether a neighbour is is okay, is looking all right. But she's she's definitely speaking to people who might be in this situation. And... I think that's what gives it a very distinctive quality and its message of hope on some level. Hello, I'm Martin. Hello, I'm Sam. And together we host Song by Song, a show about the music of Tom Waits. So you listen to Helen O'Hara right now, but guess what? We're on the same network, Strip Media. In fact, your host, Helen, was our guest in 2021, talking about Hector Babenko's Ironweed, a depression movie in both senses of the word. It was a real barrel of laughs. If you'd like to hear Helen's thoughts on Tom Waits and on culture in general, take a look at songbysongpodcast.com or search Song by Song wherever you find podcasts. Like Phila Lloyd, director Kathy Brady has recently brought a new female-focused and also, incidentally, Irish story to the screen – her debut feature, Wildfire. It's a fantastic film. Again, if you haven't seen it yet, really, really recommend checking it out. But also, I wanted to ask her about the process she went through to get her film made. Well, it was a five-year process of getting this film made. You know, I don't think we were straightforward with it, and my own fault, because I wanted to make it in a different way where I cast it first. And so I uh, workshopped and we researched it together with the two leads and working closely with the producers, the, the, the script was honed over five years. So, you know, there might have been easier, more straightforward ways of maybe making this film, but this felt like the right way to do it. And in terms of time to take my first debut, like, I, I think there was opportunities to make another film earlier, but none of them kind of quite felt right. And the thing with Wildfire is I can stand by it and go, do you know what? 
no matter what, I stand by this film. I've made it in a way that that we all wanted to make it. And it feels 100% me. And then in terms of these, you know, you said that there were kind of opportunities maybe to make films or, or get involved with films before that just didn't feel right didn't feel like you I'm, I'm interested in that as well because so f- on one hand we know that female directors are more likely to get sent to movie jail you know to to kind of suffer very serious career consequences if they don't immediately succeed every single time they go out and on the other hand you know it feels like again maybe it's a system that's set up for somebody else and and I you know assumptions that are being made for somebody else so I, I don't want to be too negative or anything about this because, you know, you've made your film and it's brilliant. But <laughs> but I am interested in, like, what these factors are that are at play. It's so interesting you said that because I, I remember up here just, you know, uh, we finished uh, our master's, not at the same time, but a similar time. So we're kind of, you know, he's a little bit ahead of me in terms of his career. He was just desperate to get his first feature made and he didn't care what it was. And he was like, he goes to me, Kathy, you just need to make it. You just need to make your first feature and then you can make the second feature and let that one count. And I just think of it now, now that you said it, I'm like, he could afford to do that as a as a white fella. If I had just willy nilly just done that first feature, the, the features that were coming my way that weren't quite developed, that weren't quite right, that I quite hadn't got a handle on, I don't think I would have done them very well, you know, and... Who knows if I would have had the opportunity to do a second feature? I don't know. First of all, I want to ask about just making a film about female characters because that's also actually a, mi- a minority of film leads. We're still about, you know, in a good year, about 80% of uh, of mainstream movies are male-focused and in a bad year, it's more like 90. It, you know, is it is it still hard to get producers, to get funders to take female-focused stories seriously? I mean, I've I've been very lucky with my producers and I've, I mean, I don't think that they kind of went out of their way to like pick a female director. I think Carlo was just actually happened to work with a lot of female directors um, who are process driven. But, but at least if I look a little bit wider and I look at my peers and I do see like from what I seen five years ago to what I see now, there's definitely more of us. So something is changing. So that means, you know, female voices, female characters, female funding is more accessible. So there is something changing and only time will tell if, if that continues, you know. But but it's interesting like what you're saying about, you know, two lead female characters and how little there is of that. Like, and I think, I remember someone had, had uh, it was very, very early days of the film just going out there and this, this guy had said it. So is it like Thelma and Louise? And I was like, okay, that's an interesting that you would pull that as your reference for Wildfire. But but then I just thought, and I felt a bit sad because I was like, oh my God, he's so little to pull on. What else is there? Yeah. What else yeah. is there? It's two women in a car. Oh, of course, it has to be Thelma Louise. I'm not discrediting that as a brilliant no, great film. Movie. Yeah. But yeah. Um, that's tragic. That's 30 years old, basically, as well. And do you know, another moment, I think the dance scene in the film is a, a big standout moment within the film because you... You get to see these women dance in a way that's entirely for themselves and they're completely present to themselves and there's this wild electric ferociousness about them and it's intoxicating to watch and yet uh, you know i i I read someone had said uh, oh their dance is incestuous what it's just but again everything has to be a women have to be sexualized or why can't they just be themselves yeah (laughs) they have to be dancing for someone (laughs) yeah well, it's interesting. These conversations are sort of, it's showing the lack of language. What has sometimes, I think, been a bit of a tripping point for some women is that the perception of how a director is supposed to or certainly allowed to act in terms of being very authoritative, very demanding, very, you know, uh, bullish a lot of the time, quite aggressive almost in, in the way that they pursue their goals, is at odds with how women are allowed to act. Is that beginning to change? Is that beginning to you know, are you beginning to be able to act in a natural way and still be kind of taken seriously by crews? I mean, I have experience of both. <laughs> so, and I think the more experience I get, the more I realise that behaviour is not appropriate and you've overstepped the mark. And I have more confidence now addressing that. I think in the, you know, I'm not naming any projects so that you know doesn't hide anyone, but within the first week of shooting something, I was aware that the schedule was, uh, the, our days were running very slow. It was taking a long time for, for costume, hair, makeup to, you know, to arrive to set, to things to be done. And I, I said to the first AD, like, what are we waiting for? Like, I, I don't understand. Like, we're, we're running behind because that has a knock on impact about how I shoot. 
the first day you kind of go, it's first day, second day you go, okay. By the end of that week, you know, there is a problem and I know it's not my problem. And I, I addressed it and I was told, well, how about you let me do the first, first day in and you just direct. And it, it did, it took to the second week and he was told to leave. But anyway, it, it is interesting, but like that wouldn't happen now again, because I have the experience of going, this is not my responsibility. And that's someone else's job who's not doing their job properly. So, and, and I think that comes with learning. It comes with confidence. And I'm sure there'll be more to come from me, you know what I mean, where I'll realise, oh God, I need to step up even more here. Now, one of the things that female and indeed non-binary and trans directors will often tell you about their careers is that they have to struggle with a kind of tension, a tension between how directors are supposed to behave and how women are allowed to act. We have this vision of directors being very decisive, very direct, they're visionary, they're allowed to be angry, they're allowed to push people to their limit, they're allowed to shout down anyone who disagrees with them. This shows their passion, this shows their artistic integrity, this shows their complete dedication to getting their film on screen. The problem is that when women do these things, they're often instantly labelled as difficult. Directors in the past, like Ida Lupino, got around this by taking on the role of mother on set. Literally, her nickname from her cast and crew was Mother. And she'd sort of plead with her cast and crew to do what she wanted, frame it as a kind of whim. Would they mind awfully trying this out for Mother? I asked Tina Garavi, director of 2012's I Am Nazarene, again, fantastic film that you should check out if you haven't seen it, about her experience as a female filmmaker and whether gender has played a role in her career. I mean, I genuinely don't think that there aren't female directors. I just think that there, you know, there's a lot of them at the ground level and I've seen them with my contemporaries and the women that I kind of came into this industry with. And then they kind of atrophize because the opportunities are not there for the women or things get harder. And so they whittle down. And, you know, I've seen a lot of mediocre men that I've also gone along with. And also some students I've taught who are male who have now surpassed me. And I know how talentless they are. (laughs) Genuinely. Genuinely, I know. In the DNA, there was no talent there. And now they are on... The BFI's watch list, they're given opportunities. And and I'm just like, I know that woman left the industry and decided to, you know, save her mental health or do the things that she needed to do. And it's like fucked up shit. And you know what? On your podcast, I'm going to say I'm done with it. And I'm going to start calling it out. Because I actually think this stuff is quantifiable. Um, I had one particular instance, which is very, very clear, where I applied for a queer screenwriting workshop teaching role, which actually I was doing out of a sense of generosity, may I add, because I was just interested in this project. I interviewed for the role with a literary agency in the Northeast. It won't actually take you too much time to figure out who. I went for the job interview. It's It was for queer and people of color, screenwriters. I've been teaching screenwriting for 20 years and I'm fabulous at it, by the way. So it's not a question of ability. Let's take that out of the equation and everyone quite knows I'm, I'm, I'm good at it. I'm good at it, not great, but I'm good at it. Anyway, they decided to go with someone else. And the funny thing was that straight white man had come for an interview to do a PhD with me. So I actually had his CV. Like I was like, this is a queer of color screenwriting thing. This guy has so many less qualifications than me and I'm calling out the shit. So I wrote to their board and they said, we have investigated this and we're satisfied with the outcome. Oh, of course they are, yeah. And I just thought, you know, like if I actually published his CV and the call out that you have put out there, and the fact that you did not hire me. And I don't even care, you know, like it's not the job, but it's like, this is how black people disappear. This is how women disappear. This is the mechanism by which uh, absence grows. 
people are marginalized, pushed away, when opportunities are taken away and given to one group that we privilege because of their essential qualities and not others. And I've been polite, you know, I've been really polite. And I'm now getting to the point where I'm like, no, and I'm, it's not going to benefit me. It probably will harm me. My agents are probably going, no, what are you doing? And I'm just going to go like, you know what? There's other women. This just not, we need to break this cycle and be like, it needs to freaking be merit-based. But that's one mechanism in, in which, you know, black people, brown people, uh, you know, diverse people, queer people, uh, women disappear. There are other ways, and sometimes it happens in more uh, insidious ways. Sometimes it's about patronage and who you know and the funny handshake and all that other stuff. Well, let me just set up first of all, because I think this is something that you in particular can speak to. I think there is a tendency in the West to think that we're progressive and we're ahead of the curve and we know what we're doing. And like, particularly in terms of female directors, we're we're way behind, right? And and you know, Iran alone has it feels like has more high profile female directors on the world stage, nearly than and given that opportunity to be on the world stage than we do in you know the UK. Yeah, I think HSBC had this ad campaign that went something like, you know, it told you statistics and then played with what your expectation was. And one of the statistics, I'm 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 not sure if I dreamt this. Uh, but kudos to HSBC if they did this. But they said this thing like 4% of feature films in Hollywood are directed by women. In Iran, it's 50%. You know, and it is true. I've heard that statistic several times, not just from a billboard, though that must be true. And, you know, Iran is surprisingly, not surprisingly to people in the West. I mean, not surprising to Iranians who know that women rule the roost. It's a matriarchal society. It's just very, very women-centered. And so there were a lot of great, strong women directors and people working in that industry. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what your point was, why is it so bad in the West? And, and actually, like, you know, and I know that in Sweden, when they've introduced incredible legislation about finding that balance that has started to happen. And I just don't think that people willingly give up power. They only will do it if it either has a carrot or a stick. So you can choose, but it's not going to happen just through altruism or a sense of like, ah, oh, yeah, we got this wrong. Um, and I think even with the statistics that show that female directed films do better in box office, that still isn't enough. And Helen, I, I mean, I'm making an Iranian women gangster film, Iranian women gangster film, which even on those pitch levels makes like people who were standing in line for Star Wars, we interviewed them and pitched them the film. We did a Vox Pops. Absolutely love it. I still can't get that film made, Helen. Those it's, three words together. I'm, I'm like, I'm buying I a know. ticket right now. I just, why? Thank you. Thank you. And I cannot, you know, and everyone's dithering. And I'm like, okay, we'll just, you know, it's like, I don't even care if I direct the film anymore. It's a really important story to me. I, it's my, it's kind of my own, a little bit of my own story. My family story is packed into that, like a, you know, a Persian godfather story with <laughs> my mother as the baddie, you know, as the Don Corleone of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just frustrating because, you know, if it was like some, you know, moderately talented a white guy in his 20s, it would just be optioned and in development and they'd get him the things he needed and bring on William Goldman to fix the script and all that sort of stuff. And you're like, we just, women and particular people of color just don't get the benefit of doubt or even what is it like where we just give someone permission. Um, and I think women need to have permission just to be crap and mediocre. And I often like think is like, you, you, you take so many risks that are crappy. Why don't you just let women, maybe if they're crappy, that'd be okay. But we always know that people are going to be better when they don't have those opportunities. And it's a story, the last anecdote, I promise. It probably won't be the last anecdote, but um, some, some guy could choose his surgeon and he goes into a room full of surgeons and he picks the black guy. And, the, and everyone says, well, why did you pick him? And he said, well, because I know he worked harder to be here. And that's what I feel about 
diverse filmmakers or women filmmakers, they're there not just because they're, you know, they've had to be much better to be there. Now, this came up as regards a producer rather than a director, right? But, um, and this was a, a couple of decades ago that she was uh, at her peak, but she said, look, if there was going to be room for one woman in the room, I wanted to be the woman. And because for a long time, there was only room for one woman in the room. So that was, I think, where a lot of that attitude comes from for a lot of people. I wrote an after-dinner speech about this called Tall Poppy Syndrome. And it is where, in fact, I think the biggest barrier to women in this industry, I hate to say it, isn't men, it's actually women. There are a lot of powerful women in this industry. And they are there in a patriarchal society, maintaining and upholding it. And actually, that's the difficult, awkward conversation to have. There's plenty of execs who are women. There's plenty of technicians who are women as well, whether it's a, a way that an editor might work with a, women, a female director or support her or not. I think those damaging and bruising relationships for me have always been with women. And actually, I find men mostly because they can be generous because they have power and they're older. They, they kind of want to use that altruism to support and bring me up because it's, I'm not a threat to them. You're absolutely right, Helen, it's that other woman in the room. In the end of my speech, which I did for the Seroptimists, the female, you know, like dinner speech, was actually the, that there is a, a solution to tall poppy syndrome, and that's to teach women that their own success lies in other women's success. Now, despite all these challenges that we've talked about, that female directors have to deal with and their male contemporaries do not, at least to the same extent, there is hope that things may be changing for the better. I asked Phil Deloitte and Amy Adrian whether they think things are improving for women in the film industry. And the answers I got are actually encouraging, albeit we're starting from a pretty low point. Here's Philida. Things are inching forward, there's no doubt. And, you know, of course, it's great to see Chloe win Best Director, you know, as we talked about, you know, women getting their hands on big budgets, um, more visibility, generally actresses becoming producers. I think that one of the things I I feel strongly about, and, and in the theatre too, there there's more visibility of women, but... We've still not in the theatre had any women in our top jobs in the UK yet. I think that one of the issues is that even if you're running one of the Hollywood studios or you're running, you know, you say you were a woman running the National Theatre, until very recently, the boards that sit behind these top jobs are predominantly male. So, you know whoever owns Universal Studios or whoever owns General Electric or it doesn't matter, forget even art, we're talking about across the world. And my feeling is that until that changes, you know, there are certain countries where it's mandatory to have representation, a percentage represented of women on on a board. In this country, we're pushing to try to get 30% by 2030, something like that. I know this isn't very popular view, but my feeling is it should be mandatory that it's 50-50. I mean, that's what happened to us on our herself set. Screen Ireland said, you get the money if you have a 50-50 crew. I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite sure whether it was you can't have the money if you don't, but it was a kind of gauntlet thrown down to us. So we kind of went, okay, great. You know, I was trying to find, you know, women to be on the crew anyway. But then when you start trying to sort of build it in right across catering drivers, da, 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 da. And we managed to achieve that. And I think that's what we need to be told, actually. Yeah. And we'd be told, no, you don't get your money unless or this is le- this will be illegal if you have less than 30% on your corporate board. Because I do think when that happens things will really start to change. And here's Amy on the same question. My film came out in 2018. And the statistics, I'll never forget the statistics for women directors of like the top, you know, 100 grossing films in 2018 was still 4%. So my film came out and everyone, you know, there are you know, lots of press about this issue, lots of research, lots of women speaking out about it. And it was like, oh my gosh, like, it's such a touch point culturally. And yet, 
the number is still the same number it's been for the last 20 years. So it was kind of like, oh my gosh, what needs to be done? Is it awareness? Like people are getting aware. And then you go, no, it's will. There has to be the will to change. But in 2019, women directed, 12, uh, I think it was 12% of the top 100 feature films. And in 2020, which as we all know, was a shit show of a year. And, you know, God, you know, for so many, you know, it's a global pandemic. So, you know, entertainment and movie releases were not the biggest of our concerns that year. But the numbers of women directors for 2020 was 16% of directors. So you go from four to 12 to 16 in, in three years. And all these researchers will tell you if there isn't sustained change for three years, it's not considered actually significant because it could just be a blip depending on the year. But you can't look at that and go, oh, nothing's changed. We're just in the same place as, as we always were. I think that's just not the case. So, and certainly I think you look at TV where so much great work is being made. It's easier to change things in TV a little bit because you have 12 episodes or 24 episodes or whatever you have. And you can say, okay, we're going to just, we're going to slot in some different kinds of directors. And I mean, it's still incredibly competitive to get those jobs, but it's not quite this whole thing of like, oh, for a feature, you know, you're the one person in charge of this whole film, but there's definitely I think been an explosion in different kinds of storytelling in TV. And that's why TV has been so exciting. You see a lot of female protagonists, you see really diverse casts, uh, diverse stories. Yes, still a lot, a lot more work needs to be done in TV. But I think TV just feels like in a medium that has a lot of energy and stories and voices and freshness. And I think it's no accident that it's that is, you know, there are more diverse stories being told there as opposed to feature films. So yeah, still, still a lot of work to be done, but I, you know, you can't say things have not started to change for the better. So that's exciting. So I hope that's been helpful. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned something maybe from those incredible directors. And once again, if you haven't seen their films already, I can only highly recommend them. Half the picture is still very difficult to get here in the UK. Um, so you may have to sort of set up an alert to see when that comes on one of the streaming services. It's not currently available, but Amy is optimistic it's going to be out in this country soon. And when it is, I can't recommend it enough. The basic takeaway here, I think, is that this old idea of what a director looks like, who a director is, is beginning to change, that we are beginning to tear down some of those stereotypes and female directors are beginning to convince Hollywood of the truth, the truth that when given the same publicity budgets, when given the same number of screens, their films do at least as well as films made by men. There is a hunger for female-made films. It's just one we haven't been meeting for the last century or so. But there is hope for the future, and if we keep the pressure on Hollywood, and especially if we go and see these women's films when they do come out, we will change that picture. It can be done. So with that in mind, thank you so much to my guests today. Sarah Grant, Amy Adrian, Tina Garavi, Kathy Brady, and Phyllida Lloyd. You can find links in the show notes to find out more about them and their work, and I really highly recommend that you do. And we've almost come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood, but before you go, here are some of our guests' recommendations of underrated films by or about women that you may have missed. Here's Amy. A handful of the films that we highlight from directors who I love and admire in half the picture, like we're not available streaming. So you films like Valley Girl by Martha Coolidge, which is like one of my all time favorites, teen, juicy teen movie. Like you couldn't get it on a streaming service or for a long time, Penelope Spheris' Decline of Western Civilization documentaries. You had to bootleg them. Like I watched that on a VHS tape with my punk rock boyfriend when I was 20 years old because you couldn't find it anywhere. It wasn't on DVD. It wasn't on video. It's not unusual. There is like a bunch of those that are like, I know these films. I've seen these films. I love these films. Like, how is this not available? So stuff like that, I think is beginning to be rectified. Those two films are like, uh, well, film series and film are now available on DVD and streaming and, you know, getting some of the love that they deserve. And here's Philida. Okay, the film is called Alexandra. It's Russian and it's about a grandmother going to visit her grandson who is in the army 
part of the Chechen war. It's like a kind of a mini break for a granny film. It's made in 2007 and directed by Sokharov. I couldn't recommend it more highly. Here's Tina. I really wanted to mention a film that I absolutely love, which is The House is Black by Farooq Farrakhzad, who's an Iranian poetess, poet. This film was made in the 1960s. It's a documentary. It's on the Criterion Collection, and it's the story of a leper colony told through a poetic voice. I've just written a biopic about her life. She's not known in the West, but she is like a, she's a prophet in Persian-speaking culture. And finally, last but not least, here's Sarah's recommendation. I thought this was such a massive film, but anyone I speak to like hasn't seen it. So I'm going to highlight Diary of a Teenage Girl by Marielle Heller. I love this film. And the thing that I love about Marielle Heller is that her, her films, and again, this they're so far apart, so far apart, are so different. Like not even in, uh, in the way that uh, Celine's uh, are different, but it's the fact that she does Diary of a Teenage Girl and then she's got Can You Ever Forgive Me? and A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, which are completely films that are miles apart. But yeah, Diary of a Teenage Girl is a wonderful exploration of like kind of a sexual awakening. You can find a list of all the films recommended by our guests in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. And you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold in the UK. The audiobook is currently available in the US and Canada on Audible, and the book itself will be released in the US and in Canada in November. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really, really does help. And to find us on social media, I'm at Helen L. O'Hara on Twitter, or you can just use the hashtag Women vs. Hollywood and we will see it. This podcast is produced by Strip Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. Thank you for listening. See you next time. just heard a stripped media production.